disciples who will indeed serve the world starting right here where we are and going as far as God will allow us to go. And what we know, kind of a little recap, um, God desires to be glorified through his church. And I pray that we as his church then therefore desire to glorify him. So if God desires to be glorified through us, may that be our desire as well. Therefore, we glorify God as we magnify him and we glorify God as we make disciples throughout the world. And we need to remember, just as we talked about two weeks ago, the Great Commission is not a call for a few of us. It is a command for all of us. Now, without a doubt, we all have different callings. We all have different gifts. And that's a, that's a really good thing when you think about a worship gathering like this, that we're not all called to the same thing. We don't all have the same gifts, these different Gifts and different callings are very good because they allow us to reach more people and uh, minister to, to more needs. But then think about this. When did the Great Commission become a matter of calling? When did it become a matter of calling where people say, well, I'm just not called to do that? You know, we, ha we act like we haven't been called to do something that Christ has commanded us to do. If you're going to write something down this today, write this down. Christ's commands are our calling. His commands are our calling. If you're looking for a calling from Christ, obey his commands. That's his calling over your life and my life. And it goes a whole lot deeper than just being called Christian. And it goes a lot deeper than just begrudgingly obeying him. Sometimes that's where we stop. We obey him, but we do it begrudgingly. Um, and we don't really give ourselves truly and wholly to obedience to him. I think of a Christian author, Ronnie McBrayer. He says this, put it this way. Being a Christian, a word used only three times in the New Testament, is not Jesus' goal for his people, but the making of a community of revolutionary followers or disciples, a word used nearly 300 times in the New Testament, seems to be exactly the goal. The church must return to these roots. The church must once again become a people who are on the way, formed by the words and way of Jesus. So we must become a people, once again, on the way, um, following in the words and the way of Christ. This is what, and please hear this, this is what we must become a part of. And I say we because I mean we collectively, together, must become a part of this. Let me show you a picture real quick and just explain what this is. So just north of San Francisco is the, the Muir Woods, an incredible forest that causes all who travel there to stand in awe of the strength and the endurance of the sequoia tree. The sequoia tree are sometimes called the largest living things on earth, reaching almost 250 feet in the air and standing for as many as 1,500 years. It is said that when you stand before them, you feel tiny and you feel envious at the same time. Yet if you could have a conversation with one of these trees, I know that that's, might sound weird for a second, and let me just pause and say, you talk to yourself all the time. So conversation with a tree can't be that weird. So if you could have a conversation with a tree, you would be wise to ask, how have you done it? How have you stood strong throughout all of this time, throughout all the storms of life? How have you not toppled? How have you endured? And the sequoia tree, if it could respond, um, 
its response would be surprising to us. The sequoia tree would not point to its deep roots as the reason how it stood for so long because the roots of a sequoia tree only go down four feet. So only four feet. The response for the sequoia tree would then be to point to the surrounding trees. If you looked around, you would notice that no sequoia tree grows alone. They always grow in groves. While the roots only go down four feet, the roots of sequoia trees always intermingle together, meaning that each tree is able to stay strong throughout the centuries, throughout all the storms that come because they are in an interdependent posture. Again, no sequoia tree grows alone. Let me say this very clearly to us today. No child of God is supposed to grow alone. No child of God is supposed to grow alone. This journey that we are taking as a faith family is not an individual journey. It's a journey that we are taking together. It will be accomplished collectively. And this series is a great jumping on point to those who are looking to give yourself to the mission of God. It's a great time to jump on and use your your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your callings to serve the Lord. I'm so thankful that in 2020 we have seen different ministries begin to form some resurrected from the dead, so to speak. And we're seeing things um, beginning to, to happen in a, in a way that is exciting because as a pastor, it's not my job to do all the work of the ministry. It's my job to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And we're seeing that happen um, in, a, in a greater sense and in a greater width, um, which is amazing to me and it excites me. I want to encourage you, if you are still looking for, for ministries, there are ministry lists in the back and there's also this Maybe God has put something in your heart that's not on the ministry list. And you don't say, well, I guess I can't do it because it's not on the ministry list. No, if God has put it in your heart, let's do it. If God has put it in your heart, why not? Why not? Let's do it and see what God does in it and through it. Let me just say this this morning. If you are here and you are a child of God, this is just a reminder, you are not the mission. If you are here and you're a child of God, you're not the mission. The mission is the mission. If you are here and you're a child of God, you are part of the mission. And you have a part to play in the mission. So what I want us to do is to continue to lift high what it means to glorify God by making disciples who will indeed serve the world. And last week, Pastor Jeremy kind of hit this. He hit a home run when it comes to what it means to be world Christians. And I just want to stand alongside that word today and point us in a kind of the same sense of what it means for us to serve um, the Lord, to serve each other, to serve the world. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10, but our primary focus today is going to be on verse 10. So Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 8, for by Grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Let me read that again. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and Lord, we want to. God, we want today to believe what your word says. That those who have been saved by grace through faith, Lord, it's not something we've done, it's something that you have done. 
And in saving us, Lord, we are called your workmanship, your works of art, by which you have designed, even beforehand, good works for us to fulfill. Not for our namesake, Lord, but for your namesake. Father, today I pray that you would just show us just a small glimpse or maybe, Lord, a huge glimpse of, Lord, your workmanship in our lives and what what it means for us to be your works of art. Lord, just speak to us, we pray, God. Oh, Holy Spirit, move in our midst. Illuminate truth, we ask. Speak, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you are in this room today and you are in Christ by grace, through faith, this is what God says about you. You are his workmanship. The Greek word is poema. It means work of art, or it basically means you're a poem. You're a poem written by God by which you are a work of art. Christians, we are God's masterpieces. We are God's beauty in a world filled with gloom. We are God's new creation in a world filled with fallen creatures. And only one other time in the New Testament does this word poema appear. And it appears in Romans 1 and verse 20. And it is not um, referencing us. In Romans 1.20 it references the creation of the world. So what we see is that God has produced two great masterpieces by which to show forth his power. One, of course, is God creating all that we know, the universe, creating it all out of nothing. What God, the omnipotent one, can do is seen in the creation of the heavens and the earth and then God sustaining that creation. But, please hear this because this is when it gets really good. The creation of the universe out of nothing is not God's greatest masterpiece. God has done something greater. He has produced a work which reveals his grace, his mercy, his power, his love in a far higher degree. The greater masterpiece, get this, is the salvation of sinners. Think about this, brothers and sisters. You, child of God, are more glorious than the universe. This is not just me speaking, trying to feel good message. You have been given, as a child of God, a special, gracious experience, not just of being God's creation, but being God's redeemed creation. We are redeemed poemas. We are redeemed creations of God. This is the greatest miracle. Here's the problem. If you listen to most um, Christians and how we talk, we don't speak about salvation for what it is, a miracle. Sometimes we don't get what the word of God calls us before Christ. We're children of wrath. We're destined for destruction. We're dead in trespasses and sins. That is who we are outside of Christ. The only thing that um, we can bring into our lives is more death, more destruction, more chaos. Yet God enters into our lives supernaturally and the greatest miracle of our lives happens. I don't know if some of you keep up with with history and different things, but yesterday marked the 40th anniversary of an event that led sportscaster Al Michaels to declare, do you believe in miracles? Now, I was surprised in the first service. Very few of them had any clue what I was talking about. Some of you will. And as soon as we started talking, they, they got more and more about it. But in one of the most dramatic events in Olympic history, 
The underdog U.S. Olympic hockey team, made up of college players, defeated the four-time defending uh, Olympic-winning Soviet team in the 1980 Olympic Winter Games in Lake Placid, New York. So despite the long odds, Team USA basically they carried the, the pride of a nation that was yearning for a distraction from all the world events, especially um, in light of the Cold War, with the world watching this U.S. team um, rose to the occasion. In fact, the crazy thing is just a few weeks before in the qualifying um, event, Russia had defeated the U.S. team. The same U.S. team, same Russia team, had defeated them 10-3. to 3. I just obliterated them. And everybody expected the same, but this young Olympic team rose to the occasion, and this game immediately became known as the miracle. Anybody? So the miracle on ice. The crazy thing is this wasn't the gold medal game. The U.S. team had to once again get up a few days later for the gold medal in which they beat Finland, I think, four to three or around there, and won the gold medal. But this is the game against Russia, that the miracle of all miracles. And let me just stop and say this. Yes, miracles can happen on ice. They can happen um, in water. They can happen um, in the air, on land, on sea. They can happen in hospital rooms. Miracles can happen in homes, in classrooms. Miracles can happen in the midst of our everyday lives. Yet, the greatest miracle that can ever happen to us doesn't happen in any of those places. It happens in our hearts. The greatest miracle that can ever happen in our lives is where God supernaturally saves us. And not only then does he save us, then inexplicably he uses us. He uses us. Therefore, from start to finish, we are a work of God. God is in the process of composing us into something that glorifies him. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says we, or he, excuse me, has predetermined the way that we serve him. From beforehand, God has determined the way we will serve him. So this morning, what I want to do quickly, I want us to look at four truths that I pray will help us see and understand our service, how we are called to serve a lost and dying world around us by which we glorify God by making disciples who will serve the world. Truth number one is this. The grace of God is the reason for our service. The grace of God is the reason for our service. Ephesians 2 is a combination of pessimism and optimism. It's a combination of despair and faith. Paul shows a vivid contrast between what we are, man is, by nature and what we can be by God's grace. In fact, Paul even tells us what we bring to the table as humanity. Do you know what you bring to the table, what I bring to the table when it comes to salvation? One old-time pastor put it this way. Yes, the answer is yes, nothing. But one old-time pastor put it this way. We did all the sinning, and God does all the saving. We bring sin to the table. That's all we can bring. And God brings grace upon grace, mercy that covers all of our sin. In fact, Paul says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. Paul says you cannot do it. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that you can boast. Listen, God understands us. He made us. If God told us to do one small, minuscule thing in order to earn salvation, and God did 99%, guess what we would boast in? That 1%. We would walk around as if we did something. And the reality is God did it all. He did it 
all. Yeah, many Christians talk about salvation so coldly, so doctrinally, like it's a ritual or it's a rite of passage. I believe that the reason real worship doesn't spring up in the hearts of so many Christians is because oftentimes we have no concept of how much mercy and grace God has poured upon us. We have lost sight of how much mercy and grace God has poured on us. We were objects of God's wrath, and he loved us anyway. And he sent his son who absorbed hell into himself so that we might be saved. And it's of utmost importance that we understand when we talk about service that we are not serving God in order to be saved. We serve God because we are saved. We serve him because we are saved. One pastor put it this way. He said, service to salvation is what thunder is to lightning. An inevitable result. Just as thunder does not generate lightning, our service will not generate salvation. So the only reason, the only way that we serve the Lord is through the grace of God. We're not... That's the only reason we're striving for good works. It's not to earn salvation. It's to show the world around us that God has graciously and gloriously saved us. Well, let me put it this way. We are his workmanship, and his grace does all the work. We are his workmanship, and his grace does all the work. Listen, I've only been in the ministry, as far as a pastor, 12 short years, but here's what I know. People who understand the grace of God don't have to be begged to do things. People who don't understand grace have to be begged to do many things. But people who understand grace, here's their mentality. They don't wake up going, I've got to go to church again, or I've got to do this. I can't believe I've volunteered for that. I've got to do it. People who understand grace don't say, I have to. They say, I get to. Praise God, I get to serve the Lord. Praise God, I get to to give him all that I am for the sake of however he chooses to use me. We we are his workmanship, and his grace does all the work. But then secondly, not only does the grace of God uh, is the reason for our service, second of all, the glory of God is the motive for our service. So God's glory becomes the motive. I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.11. Listen, it's even on the screen. Peter writes, whoever serves serves by the strength that God supplies. We're going to look at that at the very next point. But then he says in this, whoever serves in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whoever serves, serves so that God may be glorified. The glory of God on display through the lives of humanity is not just the point of this scripture, it's the point of all scripture. I'm getting ahead of myself just a bit, but let me say this. We have to understand that the whole word before us has the whole world as, or displays the whole world as in need of the glory of God. This is the point. This is the picture. Let me take you on a quick tour of, of Scripture. And we're not going to look up the Scripture, but you can write it down so you can come back and fact check me, please. But just think about Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, 26 through 28, in His grace, God created a man and woman. He blessed them with the intention that they would enjoy Him through a relationship with Him. And then God immediately gives them a command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So what are they supposed to fill the earth with? 
And sometimes we stop well short of what God intended. We go, well, they just fill the earth with people. They're supposed to just um, multiply like rabbits is what God intended. No, what God intended was for the earth to be filled with followers of God, worshipers of God. Fill the earth with my worshipers. Fill the earth with my praise. That is the point. So in creation, God freely, by his grace, creates man and then in an amazing way tells him to go forth and spread forth my glory. Then in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God in his grace calls Abram out of Ur and promises to make him a great nation. And this says this, so that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here's the point. The grace of God is given for the glory of God. The grace of God given for the glory of God. In Genesis 26, God says the same thing to Isaac. I'm going to bless you so that in you all the nations of the earth will be um, blessed. Same thing to Jacob in Genesis 28. Blessing so that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is the storyline that runs throughout the whole Bible. In the book of Exodus, God graciously and powerfully delivers the people from his people from the hand of the Egyptians so that all the nations would come to know that there is a God. All throughout Exodus, we read that phrase of God saying, I'm going to do this so that all the nations will know that there is a God in heaven. They will know that there is a Lord, there is a God, that I am He. In the book of Joshua, God graciously, powerfully gives His people an impressive victory at Jericho so that the nations would see the power of God and stand in awe of Him. In the book of Daniel, we have two different stories. The fiery furnace in Daniel 3, the lion's den in Daniel 6, where God graciously and powerfully delivers his people so that a pagan nation and all nations would come to understand the power of our God. It's all over the book of Isaiah, God responding in grace so that, his, so that he might receive glory. Or think of Ezekiel 36, 22. Listen to, listen to this. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. Listen to what God says to Israel. I'm not acting for your behalf. I'm acting on my behalf because what you have done is you have taken my name. You profaned it among the nations. You proclaimed among the nations something that's not true of me. So now I'm stepping in, not for you, but for me. So that the world would come to understand that I'm not who you proclaim me to be or who you portray me to be. I am who I proclaim and who I portray myself to be. This is the amazing point. This is the picture that we see all throughout the Old Testament. A God who is passionate about pouring his grace upon a people so that God's glory might then be displayed through that people. All the way throughout the world. But this isn't just the theme of the Old Testament. This becomes the theme of the New Testament. Jesus begins to walk on the scene, and in Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says the gospel will be proclaimed to the whole earth, and then the end will come. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of who? Of all nations. 
Follow with me here. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Romans 15.20. Paul says, I have made it my aim not to share the gospel where it has been proclaimed. So that I'm not building on someone else's foundation. But I'm going to take the gospel to where it hasn't been proclaimed for the sake of the nations. And then think about Revelation 7 and verse 9. John writes about the throne of heaven. All around the throne were people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every people. Why do we serve God everywhere we go? We do so for the glory of God. For we want God's glory to be displayed throughout this world in our lives through our lives but throughout the world that he has made the one who has poured out grace upon grace upon grace on all of us deserves glory upon glory upon glory from all of us the glory of god is the motive for our service and let me just say this and i'm getting a little ahead of myself again but if you do your service for your sake it won't last very long. If you, if you serve the Lord for something you think you're going to get out of it, you'll never get out of it what you think you were going to get out of it. Instead, what you'll get out of it is discouragement. What you'll get out of it is, God, I never thought it would be this hard. God, it wasn't supposed to be this hard. Or God, people were supposed to appreciate me more than they're appreciating me. If we do what we do for anyone else's glory, then but for God's, we are going to grow weary and quit. But if we do it for God's glory, there will never, ever, ever, ever be a shortfall of his glory. His glory will continue and his glory will be on display in and through our lives and the life of this, his church. The glory of God, the motive of our service. Number three, and this is when it gets really, really good. The son of God is the strength for our service. So the Son of God, Jesus himself, becomes the strength for our service. So if every Christian is a true poem of God, which is what Paul says, then who is the hero of the poem? And Paul answers the question. The hero is Jesus Christ. The poem is full of him. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. You know what that means let me tell you what it means. If there's anything good in you and me, Jesus put it there. If there's anything good in me, Jesus put it there. All the evil things in me, I put them there. They, they are me. They are my nature. Anything good in us, Christ put it there. Every poem of which Christ is the hero will want his name and his fame spread throughout their lives we are christ's workmanship created in him for good works or think of it like this christ demands that we value him supremely but he also demands that we serve him sincerely and our service is a whole lot easier when we aren't worrying about what everyone else is doing i'll never forget a time in my life and god just he he took me to the woodshed in a way that i can't even begin to explain. We were at a time in our church where things were really, really bad, and um, I, I, I was the youth pastor then, not the pastor. I had to mow the grass, and I was out here one Saturday mowing the grass, and I'll never forget there were people from our church who passed by on their way to the beach or 
all kind of fun places it looked like. And they would honk their horns and they would um, wave at me on their way to go about. But not one of them ever stopped by to say, hey, can we help? And I was starting to get so bitter. I was starting to get so bitter. I was like, they're not even, really, God, look at me. And God spoke to me in a way that it was so profound. God said, I didn't call them to do it. I called you to do it. I called you to do it. Brothers and sisters, if we're not careful, we're so worried about what somebody else isn't doing that we're not doing what God has called us to do or we're not doing it in the spirit by which God has called us to do it. We're so busy going, but they're not, and they're not, and they're not, and look at me, look at me, look at me. And the ultimate picture is this. Listen, stop worrying about what God may or may not have called someone else to do Start worrying about what God is, what you know God has called you to do. Amen. And do that. And, and it gets even better because here's what we understand. The secret for treasuring Christ is really serving, knowing that we're not serving alone. And here's the beauty. Jesus came in his own words in order to serve us. In Mark 10, verse 45, it says this. Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come into this world to be helped by us. He came to help us. He did not come into this, to this world to be served by us. He came to serve us. Yet, think about this. What does it mean? To say that Jesus came to serve us, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we get to tell Jesus what to do. The truth that Jesus is our servant would be belittling to him. If, if servant meant he has to take orders from us. If servant meant that we are his masters, then that would be belittling to him. But it wouldn't be belittling, belittling to him in any way whatsoever if what it says that he's our servant means that he serves us because we're weak and because we're needy. He serves us because he is the only one who can give us what we need most. Ultimately, Jesus serves us not by responding to our every wish, our every whim, our every need. He serves us by giving us what we need most in this life. And what we need most in this life is him. He gives us what we need most. Don't miss it. What Jesus asks us to do in serving is not supposed to be a natural thing. What Jesus asks us to do in serving is supposed to be a supernatural thing. Therefore, when Jesus leads us into difficult places and calls, us to, and calls us to do difficult things, he will enable us to do what he called us to do because he will serve us through it. Let me tell you what this room is full, full of. I know this because I know I'm here. There have been times in all of our lives where we have sat in a service just like this. And God has spoke so clearly to us. We knew exactly what he was calling us to do. And we looked at God and said, God, I can never do that. God, I can never do that. And I can just see God going, of course you can't do it. But I can do it through you. I can serve you. I can do it in you. And I can do it through you. So many times we don't do what Christ has called us to do because we think somehow he's called us to do it in our strength instead of to do it in his strength. Listen, he, everything he calls you to do is to be done not in your strength, but in his. Trust Jesus to serve you, knowing that as he calls you to do something, it is his way of telling you how he is going to serve you. 
If he calls you to trust him in the midst of a dark valley in your life, he has also promised to serve you all the way through that dark valley. If Jesus calls you to trust him in the midst of a windy and difficult path, he has promised to serve you all throughout every twist and every turn in that path. Everything that Jesus commands you to do or to walk through is a call for you to trust him to serve you in order that you might serve others. This is the point, brothers and sisters. Christ serves us. He still serves us. He hasn't stopped serving us. We are his workmanship. We are his poem. We are his work of art. But understand this. He's the poet. I think of the words of Joni Erickson Tata. If you don't know who she is, I encourage you to look her up and read her writing. She was a, a woman who became a, a quadruple... Quadru, ah, she became paralyzed, because I can't say that word right now, after a tragic accident. Um, where she was diving into a pool as a, as a young age, as, as a teenager. And she alludes to herself in the book, A Place of Healing, as the poema, as a work of art. And just listen to what she says. Think about a woman who ca cannot move her arms and legs. And just listen to what she says. God has a plan and purpose for my time on earth. He is the master artist or sculptor, and he is the one who chooses the tool he will use to perfect his workmanship. What of suffering? What of illness? What of disability? Am I to tell him which tools he can use and which tools he can't use in the lifelong task of perfecting me and molding me in the image of Jesus? Do I really know better than him? If I am his poem, do I have the right to say, no, Lord, you need to change stanza two, or you need to brighten up stanzas three and five. They're way too dark. Do I, the poem, the thing being written, know more than the poet? Do you know more than the poet? Do you know more than the one who is working in you and through you? We are being conformed and we are being served by Christ even in suffering for the sake of our service to Christ and for the sake of our service for Christ. The Son of God is the strength for our service. Let him serve you. Let him serve you, which leads us to the last truth. The world of God is the scope for our service or of our service. The world of God, the world before us. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And he says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus' declaration to his followers is not, is not just, you are the light of your community, you are the light of your workplace. You're the light of your region. No, he says you are the light of the world. And we shine the light right where we are. And as far as God allows us to shine that light all for his glory. I love the way that Jesus connects light, your light, with your good works. That his light shining through us is the good works that Ephesians 2 says he has prepared beforehand for us. Our serving God through serving the world becomes a display of his light throughout the world. But let's be honest. It's impossible to serve the Lord that way if all we ever focus on is ourselves. Or to put it this way, we will, we will never affect the world for Christ if we are becoming more like the world than like Christ. 
And there's so many things I could take us uh, and, and go in that regard, but let me just say this. When I say becoming like the world, becoming so self-centered and so self-focused, instead of following the example that Christ has given to us, we become so selfish in the way that we try to respond as Christians. Let me give you an example. I've heard this so many times, and there might be some here today. I pray that we've continually pushed against this. But anytime we do a, a message on missions, there's always, there's always going to be those that say, why are we so focused on taking the gospel there? There's so much need right here, right where we are. Why aren't we focused right here? And thankfully, we can say as a faith family, I hope we absolutely are. When I think about the, the heart of God all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament of engaging the, the poor engaging the widow, engaging the orphan, guess what we're doing as a faith family? All three of those things. All three of those things. If you're missing it, not our problem. We're doing it for the sake of God's glory. But here's what I know. Most people, I'm not going to say all, but most people who say things like this are just putting up smoke screens. Most every time I've heard an argument like this, it, it hasn't come from someone who is taking the gospel to Ocean Way, taking the gospel to Jacksonville, taking the gospel to America. It's someone who's basically avoiding taking the gospel anywhere. They're not taking the gospel anywhere, yet they want to talk about how dare we talk about this or that. Let's just say even, let's just say even if that person were taking the gospel to all of America, then they are admitting that their heart is only consumed with 5% of what the heart of God is consumed with. Because the, the heart of God is consumed with the world. And the beauty is this. We don't have to choose between serving our community, serving our city, serving our nation, and serving the world. We get to do both. We get to do both. Our God is worthy of both. We are light so that the world may see our good works and it bring glory to our Father in heaven. But let me say this. If all of our good works are done in here and most of the people of the world are out there, how are we supposed to glorify God? We've got to take the works. We've got to take the light where darkness is. We can't just shine our lights on each other in this room. Let us engage the world. Let us serve the world so that the world may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. I'm going to end this morning with the words of John Piper. And these words are so powerful. He says this, Let us work hard, but never forget that it's not us, but the grace of God which is with us. Let us obey now, as always, but never forget that it is God who works in us, both the will and the deed. Let us spread the gospel far and wide and spend ourselves, but never venture to speak of anything except what Christ has wrought in us. And listen to the way he ends this. In all of our serving, may God be the giver and may God get the glory. In all of our serving, God gives us what we need because Christ serves us. The one who gives all the grace deserves all the glory. God is the giver. Therefore, may we live our lives for him, through him, and let him get the glory that is due him through our lives and through this, his church. Don't we want that, church? Don't we want that? I pray that we want that. I pray we want what he wants for us. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to call the musicians forward as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we say, 
whatever it is that God is speaking to your heart today, that you would say yes. Maybe you're here and, and the reality is, as we talked about, that picture of God calling you to certain things and maybe God took you back in that moment to something that you said no to. Maybe today is a day where God has brought you right back there so that this time you can say yes. Whatever it is, may our yes be on the table. Oh, Father, we come before you in this moment thanking you for your powerful word. God, it is living. It is powerful. Lord, help us to believe what your word says of us. The enemy would convince us that we are not your workmanship. The enemy would convince us, God, that we are distorted and we are messed up and we can never be used by you, yet that is not what your word says. Your word tells us time and time again, God, you use broken vessels. God, thank you for using broken vessels. Thank you for using us even in our brokenness. And God, I pray today, Lord, that you would break through the lies, the excuses of, of your people. And that we would instead, God, lay our yes on the table. Whatever it is that you're calling us to. Just finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.